Bear Books presents Ending Samsara, written by JW Voice and read by Daisy Ray. Part 2 After a Cycle is Broken 6. Marcus was eager to hear any guidance Sam might offer. Aside from being without question the wisest person he'd ever known, and an impenetrable vault of discretion. She was also gloriously idiosyncratic, blessed with the virtue of viewing problems from angles that no one else could see. An overwhelming urgency to meet her was also fuelled by his longing for Matilda to finally see firsthand the relationship between them for what it really was. I've told you a million times, Tilde, it's not like that. But she's come all the way to England just to visit you. Not just me, no, he said. Her work takes her all over. And what work is that exactly? Her tone riled him, but he tried to remain amiable. I don't really know. When I knew her, she was a kind of shrink, I guess. A kind of shrink? What does that even mean? Okay then, a shrink. Jesus, just what is it with you? Why all this hostility? Oh, I don't know, cuss. Maybe because the woman you've been obsessed with half your life has hurried over for a nice little catch-up. She folded her arms. I think I've got the right to be hostile. Marcus shook his head, then ran both hands down his face. For the last time, I'm not obsessed with her. She's a mate. You seriously don't remember, do you? He looked up. Remember what? Back when we were just friends? You told me all about her, the amazing older woman who helped you get over all the stuff that happened to you as a kid. The one you said you, and I quote, had a massive crush on. God, seriously? That's what this is all about? Matilda simply glared at him. Yeah, you're right. Years ago, as a misguided kid, I had a crush on the woman who used to give me free therapy. It's called transference, Tilde. It's not uncommon. Besides, even if it wasn't just some childish infatuation, it never would have gone down like that. Nothing could be further from reality. Why? She a lesbian? What? No, she just... He struggled for the right words. She just operates on an entirely different frequency. A different frequency? She huffed. Sounds pretty damn uppity to me. She better than us. Marcus hesitated. Yeah, you know what? She is. She's better than anyone. Matilda stared back at him, incredulous. He sighed. Just meet her. You'll see. What do you expect to learn from her anyway? You've passed the photos on to Z. I thought the plan was just to figure out who those guys answer to and work from there. It still is but there has not been a single issue I've discussed with Sam that she couldn't shed some kind of light on. She sees things from perspectives I wouldn't even consider. What do you think she's going to do in this case? Take them all on single-handed? I don't know. I guess we'll see. The pair had kept a low profile since returning to London. They'd remained in their camper and not dared to venture anywhere near their burgled home. They'd also stayed well clear of family, and their usual contacts. Aside from Anushka, the only person they'd met with was Z, the hood whisperer. 
If a person had any criminal aspirations whatsoever, chances were that Z knew all about them, and if he didn't, he would undoubtedly find out. They'd approached him yesterday and handed him stills of the hitmen in question, along with £200 for his trouble. He'd pored over the photos and told them he'd be in touch. While Marcus waited for the verdict, a meeting with Sam seemed as good an option as any. Marcus arranged to meet her in a cafe on the outskirts of Camden. He was glad Matilda could not sense the swarm of butterflies fluttering in his stomach. He didn't actually know what was causing such a flurry of anticipatory nerves. Perhaps it was simply that he'd not seen her face to face in two long years. Does she know I'm going to be here? Till jibed when they found a table at the back. Yes, Marcus said, rolling his eyes. He was just about to remind her to be cordial when he noticed movement at the door. She's here. Tild looked up, her eyes fixed on the woman as she approached. Sam soon noticed them both and smiled. Marcus, she said, full of warmth. He could feel Matilda's eyes burning deep into the back of his head as the woman hugged him. It's good to see you. Likewise, um, this is Tild. Tild, this is Sam. Sam extended her hand and for a moment Marcus was worried his partner wouldn't shake it. When she did, he hoped it wasn't too firm of a grip. Nice to meet you, Tild, Sam said. You're prettier than I expected, said Matilda. Oh, Sam replied, clearly taken aback. Thank you, um, Marcus already told me how gorgeous you were. She smiled. Marcus was thankful for the comment, but watching how intently his girlfriend was staring at the other woman, he tried to break the tension. I've ordered you a green tea, is that all right? I don't know what's taking so long, though. Yes, perfect, thanks. They exchanged awkward pleasantries until the drinks arrived. Then Marcus started recounting all the details of the last month or so, before moving on to his theory of a drug organisation looking to eliminate its competition. And that just about brings us to now, he said. Wow, you guys had quite a journey. Yeah, it's been a bit mad. So the break-in was unrelated. You've ruled out the work of any hired help there. Yeah, Marcus replied. He was bowled over by how easily she took everything in her stride. He might as well have been telling her about a holiday they'd both been on. But why are you so certain that people are out to get you? Has there actually been any attempts on your life? Well, no, I... Marcus faltered. Forgive me, it's just that I've had a bit of experience with hitmen of late, and it seems that if there is a bounty on a person's head, those involved tend to take pretty definitive action. Do you think I'm being paranoid? Marcus asked in earnest. Unbelievable, Matilda muttered, causing Sam to glance over at her. Marcus let out a nervous laugh. She keeps telling me I'm being paranoid, he explained. Well, are you? Marcus was momentarily distracted by a large man in a black leather jacket entering the cafe. Look, he said, refocusing. I led those guys to Gaz's house and you know what they did from there. If you think I'm being paranoid, I... Marcus's sentence was cut short by the man in leather. He slapped a large hand on the seat beside Samsara. May I? he said. Marcus was confused by the question. The cafe was practically empty and there were plenty of seats near the front. Yeah, whatever, he said. Just take it, bro. 
Worryingly, the man smiled and sat down at their table. Yo, Marcus yelped, this is a private conversation. The large gentleman leaned in. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. He spoke quietly and deliberately in a thick Cockney accent. I'm looking for a Marcus Taylor and a Matilda Basu. You're in the wrong place, mate, Marcus said forcibly. The man leaned back and smiled before opening his jacket. Okay, let's try it another way. Look down. He lifted his shirt slightly to reveal the handle of a gun. Matilda gasped. Marcus froze. I'm going to ask again. He glared at Marcus. Mouthy fucker, I guess you're Marcus. Which one of you is Matilda? Before Tilde had a second to answer, Sam piped up. I'm Matilda, she said calmly. The man studied her. Hmm, you fit the vague description, although I thought you'd be younger. With a raised eyebrow, he swiftly turned his attention to Tilde. Who are you? Again, before she could answer, Sam spoke up. This is my baby sister, Gerpreet. Marcus watched Sam stare at his girlfriend. Her eyes pleaded for agreement. Matilda hesitated for a moment. Uh, yeah, I'm Gerpreet. Okay, fine. I'll tell you how this is going to go down. Please listen to the conviction in my voice when I say I have no problem with executing all three of you right here, right now. Matilda and Marcus both winced. Mate, Marcus started. He felt the pounding of blood in his ears. Quiet, he glanced at Marcus and Sam. I've been given instructions to take you two with me. Nothing was said about a Gurpree, so sweetheart, I suggest you get up and piss off right now. Matilda went to object. Right now, he repeated, rendering her silent. May I stress that if you utter a single word of this to anyone, I'll find you and put a bullet in your head and another one in every person you hold dear. She hesitated. His eyes widened. Quickly, love, as it stands, the newspapers are going to say nothing about this in the morning. Don't make the headlines read three people shot and killed in cafe. She took a short, trembling breath. Go, he grunted, teeth bared like an attack dog. His eyes locked onto Marcus as Tilde shot up obediently. Samsara rose a second later to hug her. Matilda appeared uncomfortable as Sam kept her in a tight embrace. Although he couldn't be certain, it looked as though she was whispering something into her ear. Okay, break it the fuck up, you two. The man stood up to separate them. I love you, sis, Sam whispered again. This was loud enough for everyone to hear. Matilda stepped back. The confusion in her eyes was now mingled with panic as she stared at Marcus. He nodded his head towards the door. She remained focused on him as she walked away. The gunman glanced over to her, making sure that she'd left before he spoke again. Right, you two, he started before tossing a twenty-pound note on the table. You're going to walk in front of me, through the exit and into the car, parked just outside. If either of you stops or hesitates, I'll put a bullet in your head. If either of you glances in any direction other than forward, I'll put a bullet in your head. If either of you utters a single word, I will put a bullet in your fucking head. He smiled. Nod if you understand. Marcus nodded first. The fierce thudding continued in his ears and temples. Sam bowed her head shortly after. 
Her face was impassive. Marcus could not be sure if she was even panicked. She led them all outside in single file. As promised, a black Mercedes was parked directly in front of the building. She climbed in first and slid to the far side. Marcus's legs were like jelly. He stumbled in soon after and clumsily fell into the seat. He glanced at the driver, a man of slighter build with a shaved head. One of the men from Gaza's apartment, he thought. As they pulled away, he searched the pavement for Tilde, but she was nowhere to be seen. Okay, the first man grunted, now sat in the passenger seat. Give me your phones. They obliged with little delay and he pocketed each one. Listen, Marcus started. The man jerked back and thrust his gun from underneath his right arm. The no-talking rule still applies, he said. Marcus fell silent. The solitary sound heard thereafter was the gentle purr of the engine as they smoothly navigated through the Camden back streets. A thousand thoughts reverberated in Marcus's brain. Questions were posed and answered in milliseconds and only led to further ones. The most logical links were made early. Who were these men? Hired hitmen, it seemed obvious. The same ones who'd been after him all along. Why did Sam say she was Matilda? Selflessness, of course. The same impetus that drove every one of her decisions. Where were they being taken? Unknown, but it followed that they were meeting someone in charge. Marcus was disturbed to reflect that they'd not been blindfolded. This was likely intended to be a one-way trip. Not quite matching the fear, but ever-present was an intense feeling of guilt. Why did you do it, Sam, he thought. You could have left. It was not to say that he couldn't have felt remorseful. If Tilde was sitting there in her place, as well as extreme terror for the woman he loved, this was not Sam's fight, though. It had nothing to do with her at all. As they took a few more turns deeper into the narrowing back alleys, he thought he spotted a familiar sight in the rear view, the RV. Although it was only a quick flash, he was sure he'd seen it. They made another turn at a junction, however, and he dismissed it immediately. Matilda didn't drive, and even if she did, there was no way she would have followed them after hearing the man's warning in the cafe. After an incalculable stretch of silent driving, they eventually pulled into a tiny loading bay at the back of a dingy grey building. Both men exited the car and walked around to the back doors. Marcus was grabbed roughly by the arm and pulled out by the driver. He gave the man little resistance. In his short time in the loading bay, Marcus glimpsed a black van with tinted windows. He couldn't discern the graphic on the side, nor was he quick enough to read the number plate. The driver did not relinquish his grip until he and Sam were marched through the door beside a huge corrugated shutter. Two by two they ascended three flights of narrow stairs and emerged in a narrow corridor. From here they were dragged into a small room with empty floor space. The walls were adorned with shelves, stacked high with what appeared to be toner cartridges and wads of printer paper. The driver left the room while the man from the cafe pulled out his gun and stood guarding the door. Marcus and Sam glanced at one another, neither daring to speak. A minute or two later the driver returned with two chairs. He positioned them two metres apart, facing inwards in the centre of the room. His phlegmatic manner reminded Marcus of the scene in Gaza's apartment. It gave him a chill. From the doorway the larger man gestured at them with his gun. Sit, he said. They did as they were told. 
The driver joined his colleague, flanked on the other side of the door. Both were now wielding handguns. The room was deathly still as Marcus sat bolt up right next to his friend. He could not look her in the eye, instead he stared over her shoulder at nothing in particular. There was no telling how long they waited there in silence, and all the while his heart maintained its elevated pace and blood continued thumping in his head. The anticipation made it feel like an eternity. It seemed apparent that some kind of interrogation would ensue, or perhaps not even that. A swift and timely end sounded a more palatable option, which demonstrated what a truly terrible situation they were in. Such an event seemed unlikely, however, for if they were simply to be killed, this would have happened already. Marcus's indeterminable flurry of second-guessing was only halted by the knock at the door a good while later. The driver opened it and made no acknowledgement of the man who entered. He was an older gentleman of an unremarkable build. His hair was grey, his complexion pale, and in his hand was a huge silver briefcase. The way the case lowered his shoulder gave the impression that it had some weight to it. Good afternoon, the new visitor glanced at each of them in turn. He wasn't English and Marcus couldn't place his accent. A table, please, he muttered to the driver. The subordinate nodded and left the room once more. The older gentleman dropped the briefcase at his feet with a substantial thud. You are Matilda Basu, he said, addressing Sam. She nodded. Any nicknames? What do your friends call you? Tilde, Sam replied with little hesitation. And what about you, Marcus Taylor? Uh, some people call me Cuss. Good, I'm going to ask you both some questions. You are to answer honestly. If I think either of you is lying... Well, I trust my colleague here has already informed you of how we handle such indiscretions. Marcus nodded. Cuss, the man smiled. How old are you? Thirty, he answered. And you? Marcus's heart went into overdrive at this question being posed to Sam. Uh, Sam faltered. Twenty-seven. Wrong, Marcus thought, knowing his girlfriend was twenty-five. Despite appearances, he knew that Sam was far older and it wasn't a bad guess. He winced, awaiting a sudden gunshot from one of the men at the door. Instead, the man followed with another question. And you two are romantically involved? Both nodded. How nice. How long have you been together? The query was directed at Marcus, and he was relieved. Um, for four years, I think, he said. That sound about right to you? The grey-haired man asked Samsara. She nodded, and the three of them turned back at another knock from the door. The driver re-entered with a high table, which he positioned beside them. The grey-haired man heaved the briefcase onto it. He unfastened the clips and it opened out into its three tiered layers. Marcus flinched when he registered the contents. Rows of sharp implements shimmering under the fluorescent lighting. Cuss, why do you think you've been brought to me? You're going to kill us. The man's eyebrows lifted. He laughed. How frank! And not the answer I was expecting. I don't know is the typical response. Indiscriminate and non-committal, yours suggests some guilt, would you not agree? Marcus gave no reply and the man laughed once more. His heavily weathered face was telling of a long and dangerous existence. Now, Cuss, why would you jump to such a startling conclusion? Are you often abducted and threatened with execution? You've been after me for months. 
a nonchalant reply entirely at odds with the pounding in his chest and the sweat forming on his brow. Have I now, said the man, and why would this be? Marcus glanced at the driver, then back to the boss. You saw me as a threat. The man guffawed at this, revealing several gold teeth at the back of his mouth. He looked back at the men at the door. They each permitted a smile as well. Is that right, and do I seem threatened now? Marcus decided to shrug. This feigned indifference appeared to be the only form of control he could cling to, while the terrifying stranger evidently held all the cards. What about you, Tilde? Did you share your partner's morbid pessimism? She nodded, and he suddenly crouched to her level. Why would I think you were a threat? You thought we were going to steal business from you. He paused, seeming to consider the statement. I see. And are you? She shook her head. No, we never had any interest in doing that. Oh, so you feel like this is one big misunderstanding? He stood up and faced Marcus. Tell me, what is it exactly you do? What business would I assume you were going to take from me? Drugs, Marcus responded. He paid another glance into the terrifying briefcase. The man nodded and started to pace back and forth. I'll start being less cryptic, shall I? He leered at Marcus. I'll tell you what I know. You are Marcus Taylor, 30-year-old university dropout and petty criminal. You spent three and a half years at Rochester Prison for conspiracy to supply narcotics before being let out for good behaviour. You had one older brother, now deceased. You were born in Hammersmith, orphaned at an early age, and you were physically and sexually abused as a child. Distastefully, he grinned at the last comment. You, he turned to Sam, are Matilda Basu. You also have one older brother, but he is still alive and you have no recorded history of abuse or criminal activity. You were born in Lewisham. Your parents are divorced. You graduated university with a degree in fine arts. Oh, his smile faded. And you are 25 years old. He crouched down in front of her. 25, not 27. He moved to within inches of her face and slammed both hands on each arm of her chair, a move clearly meant to startle. She maintained her impassivity. Do you remember what I said about lying? She nodded and he pushed himself back to his feet and removed something from his briefcase. My colleague is not going to shoot you, just yet. But such silly games will not go unpunished. Give me your hand. She raised one. He pulled it towards him and separated her little finger. The implement in his other hand was a pair of pliers. He clasped it to her finger. The sudden jerk he made produced an audible crack. Sam shuddered. This and a sharp inhale was the only reaction she displayed. He moved on to the next one. Why did you lie? Your information is wrong, she grunted. Wrong! He yanked the pliers and there was another crack. Marcus jumped in his seat. He could feel his eyes filling with tears. But Sam remained silent and seemingly unmoved. Being mistaken by a year is perhaps permissible under stress, but never too. Why did you lie? A tear trickled down Marcus's cheek. She didn't deserve this. 
Your information is wrong, she asserted once more. From his expression, it seemed as though the man was now unsure of himself. Perhaps he was even starting to believe her. He dropped the pliers on the floor. They clanged dissonantly against the concrete. Sam clutched her injured hand, the only sign that she'd had anything done to her. Angered now, the man turned to Marcus. What does the name Gary Ferguson mean to you? he snapped. Marcus was still rattled by what he'd just witnessed. Um, Gary Ferguson? I know him as Gaz. He's a software specialist. I used to sell him weed. He mentioned about the two of us going into business together. Harder stuff, cocaine, heroin. I said I wasn't interested. He barely paused for breath. What else? He's dead now. How did he die? Marcus faltered. Uh, suicide? The interrogator lurched over him. How did he die? Flecks of spit struck Marcus in the face. He was close enough to see the redness stippled in the whites of the man's eyes. Your men, they, they killed him, made it look like suicide. He pushed off Marcus's chair, the legs inched back slightly, scraping on the hard floor. You, he pointed a finger at Sam, how old are you? Twenty-seven, she said without hesitation. What is your brother's name? She simply stared at him. Well, he demanded, it's not a hard question, you only have one, what's his name? She glanced at Marcus. Don't look at him, look at me. What is your brother's name? My brother has nothing to do with this, she said. I'm not saying he does. What is his name? Jay, his name is Jay. Marcus tried to project the name telepathically. I don't have to tell you, she said, looking him in the eye. The man immediately started to pace again, shaking his head. He looked up and then back down again. He twitched and marched towards the briefcase. This time he pulled out a large silver cleaver. He started to wave it. Are you police? He barked at Marcus. No! Informants, government agents. No, Marcus replied, simply confused by the line of questioning. A minute ago he'd been certain the man knew everything about him. Then how the fuck do you know my guys killed Gary Ferguson? Marcus had an extremely uneasy feeling, something he'd not considered until now crept into his mind. You're sitting there with tears in your eyes and piss in your pants and I haven't even touched you. He waved the cleaver towards Marcus in the final few words, then he turned to Sam, while you, calm and composed like a goddamn Buddhist monk, how can this be? He thrust the cleaver in Sam's face and she didn't so much as flinch. Well, I think it's because you're both full of shit. Not who we think you are at all. I will have answers if I have to cut off all your limbs to get them. He turned. I'll start with you, Marcus Taylor. Considering you've been the cooperative one, your dead brother, what was his name? Francis, Marcus choked. He felt the tears trickling down his cheeks. Correct, you're no good foster father, the one who did all the bad things to you. What was his name? Bill Travener. There was grit in his voice as he said this. Right. Then I see two possibilities. One, unlikely, your ballsy friend here you've actually rehearsed your story. Or two, 
You are the exact worthless piece of shit we thought you were. He raised a finger in the air. Let's suppose the latter is true. He crouched back down and stared into Marcus's eyes. His own were lifeless. How do you know what happened to Gaz? Before he finished the sentence, he snatched Marcus's jaw. The younger man flinched as his face was pulled upwards. How do you know? The hand was so tightly clamped onto his cheeks and chin that he couldn't respond if he'd wanted to. The man shoved his head back and started to pace again. I was in, Marcus started. Shut up, the man paused and raised a finger again. I need to straighten something out. He pointed at Sam. You, Ice Queen, your story doesn't corroborate his and it's making me question the whole damn thing. He turned away from both of them. Brace her. The men at the door quickly descended on Sam. The swift obedience of it was startling. From behind, the driver held her down by the shoulders while the other forced her wrists against either arm of the chair. I'm giving you a final chance to tell me who you are and what your business is with me. He positioned the cleaver at the lower part of her slender forearm. Her name is Samsara Tawari, Marcus yelped. She's my friend. She has absolutely nothing to do. Quiet, the man turned back to scream. Any air of composure he previously exuded was gone now. He lifted the cleaver away and stepped to Marcus. A minute ago she was your fucking girlfriend, now she's your friend. He leapt forward, grabbed Marcus by the collar and thrust the cleaver into his throat. Although not pressed hard enough to penetrate, the steel was cold and he felt its sharpness pinching at his skin. You know, I had no idea who you were until yesterday morning, when some photographs were handed to me. Marcus's heart sank. His earlier suspicion had been plucked from the air, fully unveiled and violently force-fed to him. Impossible, Marcus spluttered. You thought Gary was going to disturb your drug business? The man sneered. I don't have a drug business. Your friend Gary did many things to displease me, not least of which was turning my own fucking daughter against me. But he didn't sell drugs and neither do I. Your accusation is a vicious insult. Anushka, Marcus thought. It surely couldn't be true. He tried to piece it together, clusters of evidence that suddenly felt flimsy. No, your men, they followed me, I... Where did you find those pictures? Marcus couldn't get a foothold on his thoughts, his mind was racing wildly. He started to hyperventilate. But... You're the competition, the black van, I was followed. You... Get a hold of yourself, pathetic boy. The man withdrew the cleaver from his neck and turned around. You, Matilda, Samsara, which is it? The two men continued to hold Sam in place. Matilda, she responded. Marcus groaned. He knew she was saying this for his girlfriend's sake. But the twitch of anger it elicited on their interrogator's face was terrifying. The man nodded. He looked at Marcus. Then he returned to Sam and raised the cleaver over her restrained arm. With a sickening blow, he hacked her wrist, an inch above the hand gripped by a larger man. Blood gushed from the resultant wound and she shuddered. He hacked again and the joint was severed. Fluid issued out in spurts now. Even the man holding her appeared to grimace. 
He released the hand that was no longer connected to anything and it slid and flopped onto the floor. The henchman produced a tissue and wiped the blood from his own hand. Marcus immediately vomited onto the front of his clothes. Quarterise that, the man in charge muttered to the driver. I don't want her bleeding out. The driver released her other wrist and approached the table to remove a small silver blowtorch from the briefcase. Sam's face was drained of some of its colour. Her eyes were closed. She started to quietly chant. Her mutilated wrist oozed blood in rhythmic spurts. Marcus wiped the bile from his lips. He was blubbering like a baby now. She doesn't deserve this, he whimpered. The driver fired up the blowtorch. He lifted her maimed arm from the chair and carefully directed the blue flame at the open wound. Um, hum, she continued to chant. Smoke issued from the searing tissue and a putrid stench filled the air. An almost sweet metallic smell mingled with sulphur. That, my friends, is one ferocious motherfucker, the grey-haired man cried with clear reverence. You boys can learn a lot from her. He turned to Sam. What is that you're chanting there? She ignored him and continued, eyes closed. It's a shame, really. Someone with your nerve should be working for me. He placed the blood-soaked cleaver on the table behind the briefcase. But you don't work for me, and therein lies the problem. He sighed. I bet I could spend all night working you over and you still wouldn't give me a thing. What are you, ex-military, secret service? Sam's eyes were still closed. In spite of everything, she looked peaceful. The man pulled out a pistol from his waistband. I haven't got all night, though. Sam! Marcus blurted through fits of tears. I'm so sorry for everything. The grey-haired man thrust a finger towards Marcus. You see the difference, boys. Real strength is given to but a few. Listen, Marcus screeched. If you kill that woman, you'll be making the worst decision of your life. Then talk, you pitiful cunt. Save her life. Her name isn't Matilda. It's Samsara. Sam broke her mantra to interrupt him. No, Marcus, she said, opening her eyes. They're going to kill you, he sobbed. I can't. Shh, she smiled. It was a distant, disconnected smile, like someone sedated by a divine kind of drug. Her eyes momentarily darted to the door, then back to him. Your journey doesn't end here, for I am ready. Do not cry for me. I will soon be free. Free from what? he shouted. She closed her eyes and resumed her chanting. The man cocked his pistol and pointed it at Sam's head. It almost pains me to do this, he said. When you can't get blood from a stone, your only option is to destroy it. Although Marcus could tell the man was trying to impart an elegiac tone to his words, to sound magnanimous even, Sam's quiet resilience, her tranquility in the face of death, exposed him for something entirely unimpressive. His previous authority was somehow nullified. Any last words, sweetheart? 
She opened her eyes again, looking deeply into Marcus's. Second chances are not to be wasted. Take the path you knew you should have always taken. Though he hadn't any notion of what she meant, a wave of static energy pricked the hairs on the back of his neck. She closed her eyes once more. The grey-haired man looked to Marcus, then back to Sam. Crack! He discharged his pistol. Sam's head fleetingly whipped back before slumping forward. No! Marcus screamed. The sound of the gunshot still rang in his ears. Otherwise, the room was filled with deathly silence, which the grey-haired man waited for over a minute to break. He was breathing heavily. One down, he said coldly. Now, before you follow in her footsteps, care to tell me why you've been sniffing around in my affairs? Fuck you, Marcus responded. He wasn't crying any more. It was as if some of his friend's strength had flowed into him, or perhaps any hope he'd previously held on to had died with her. The man raised his bushy, greying eyebrows. Excuse me? If hell exists, you're going to rot there for eternity after what you just did. Boys, the young man has finally found his balls, he laughed. The driver sneered but a second later his expression shifted in time with the resounding thud of a door slamming against the wall. Crack-a-crack-a-crack-a-crack-a! issued a thunderous roll of gunfire. Blood sprayed from the grey-haired man's chest, his gun slipped from his hand and he crumpled to the floor in a heap. The driver had reached for his own gun while the other man raised his hands and cowered. Both men convulsed under the flurry of shots, then they slumped to the ground beside their boss. Smoke hung in the air. Marcus suddenly realised he was doubled over in his chair with his eyes closed. He opened them, straightened up and heard the squeaks of hurried footsteps behind him. Tentatively, he looked up to observe the three men who had entered. Each of them now scanned the room with raised rifles. After a moment, one placed his on the floor and attended to Sam. He lifted her head and muttered something in a foreign language. He faced Marcus. You hurt? Marcus shook his head. The brutal-looking man nodded and started to search Samsara's body for something. A moment later, he produced a tiny cardboard folder from her pocket. He walked over to Marcus and handed it to him. What's this? Marcus whimpered. The man forcibly thrust it into his hand. Put it in your pocket. Without even glancing at it, Marcus did as he was told. Use tomorrow. What? Go, the man pointed at the door. Marcus hesitated. Who are... Go! In a daze, Marcus struggled to his feet and staggered through the open door, following the way he'd come in. A cool breeze caressed the wetness of his soiled shirt. Walking through the last corridor, he had to step over a lifeless body. Sharp ringing filled his ears. He stumbled down the stairs and back out into eye-piercing daylight. He didn't dare to glance back. The gate they'd passed through earlier had been forced open. He struggled through the gap out of the loading bay and back onto the street. He didn't know where to go from here. But as he lumbered down the pavement, the taste of bile still clinging to his tongue, he jumped to the sound of a loud engine revving and stalling behind him. He turned to see his RV and hurried towards it. Matilda was at the wheel. The driver's side window was down. Can you drive? she asked. 
He nodded and she moved over to the passenger seat. Are you okay? She glanced at the vomit on his chest as he boarded the motorhome. Marcus nodded, his hands were trembling as he pulled away. He nearly stalled himself in the process. What just happened? he asked her. Who were those men? In the cafe, your friend handed me a card with a number on it. She told me to follow you and then to call the number and repeat the address to them. Where is she? Marcus shook his head. Words failed him. They drove out of the city in silence. Marcus didn't know where he was heading exactly. He just wanted to find somewhere quiet and far away. At least half an hour passed before he was able to speak. Who were they? he asked again. I don't know. One of them just told me to wait until you came out onto the street and then for us to drive away immediately. It's all they said. Matilda hesitated, as if debating her next words. Sam, what happened to her? They, Marcus's eyes became blurred. He coughed, forcing down his thoughts simply to focus on the road. She, she told me not to cry for her. Huh? Nothing, Marcus said. What do we do now? Marcus suddenly remembered the card in his pocket. Keeping his eye on the road, he slipped it out and handed it to her. This is a room key, she said. I know the hotel. It's in Regent Park. But what? I was told to use it tomorrow. Matilda nodded. He could tell she sought no further explanation. Knowing of nowhere to park their enormous vehicle in central London without harassment, they pulled into the nearest campsite outside of the city. Matilda paid in advance at the office while Marcus parked up and changed out of his six-soaked clothing. By the time she'd returned, the adrenaline in his system had faded, leaving him weak with exhaustion. Matilda got into bed with him and he drifted off within minutes. When he awoke in the dead of night a few hours later, he was certain she'd been lying wide awake beside him the whole time. As soon as he'd gathered his senses, he seemed compelled to talk. That he felt no pressure from Tilde to explain what happened somehow made it easier. He was sure to include every minute detail, from leaving the cafe to the moment the men stormed the room. He struggled through tears to recount what they did to his friend. The pliers, the cleaver, the blowtorch, the gun. He was sure to impress how impossibly brave she was throughout. It was akin to discussing a legend, a character from folklore, and this was all she would be from now on. That could have been me, Matilda said. Now she was the one sobbing. She insisted that she was you from start to end, Tilde. She was so convincing. I'm sure they started to believe her. But why? He could hear the guilt in her voice. In the cafe. She could have left. Why did she do it? That was Sam. I owe my life to her. We both do. He held her tightly for a while as she wept. I'm sorry. It was the first intelligible utterance from her mouth. For what? he asked. For what I thought of her. Before. All either of us can do now is try and make it up to her. How? 
by living life with a fraction of the kindness, the selflessness, the courage that she did. He felt her nodding in agreement. Then it was her turn to rest and for him to watch over her in the dark. The sleepless hours passed without distraction. His body felt frozen in position on the bed, but his mind was free to wander. When dawn broke an eternity later, he summoned the will to rise. He left her to sleep and used the communal showers in the campsite. Even at the highest setting, the scalding water didn't feel hot enough. After an initial jolt, he was numb to the pain. He scrubbed and scrubbed and could not feel anything close to clean. He tried to pretend his reflection wasn't present when he eventually passed by the mirror. No sane person would have spared his life over hers. At 9am they both boarded a train to London and took the underground to Regent's Park. Checking the card wrapped around the room key, they soon found themselves outside a room on the fifth floor. Marcus hesitated before he inserted the card in the door. All he could envision on the other side was an empty room with his dead friend's belongings, and he wasn't sure he could face it right now. Why are we here? he said. Because she wanted you to come here, Tilde said. He nodded and they entered. The room was neat and orderly. A packed suitcase sat at the foot of the bed. Only one other thing caught his attention as he looked around. On the dresser was a folded piece of paper with his name written on in large, bold lettering. He unfolded it to reveal two small handwritten pages. Dear Marcus, there was always a chance that this letter would be disposed of. That you are currently reading it, however, means my precaution was a necessary one. I will start by asking for forgiveness. I ascertained more of your situation in the preceding hours than I likely had the time or ability to express to you. Please do not think that I deliberately kept you in the dark. You would never have been able to truly grasp the dire position you had placed yourself in. To try and convince you that your recent actions did not prompt the awful events that followed would be to do you a great disservice. It is your fault. You are entirely responsible. But that is not to say that you deserved what happened. Really, does one find oneself in the middle of the ocean, caught in a storm too fierce to weather? Life, however is wild and unpredictable, and you unknowingly drifted into such a storm. These kinds of perils cannot be overcome without certain costs and casualties. Again, it is your eyes reading this note, and it therefore follows that my death was the collateral damage incurred. This was an event I facilitated, and something you cannot blame yourself for. Do not feel sad for me, I am free. Do not feel anger towards my killers. It is wasted energy. They were simply playing their part, however heinous you might consider it to be. I know you are currently in search of a new occupation. With this in mind, I have a proposal for you. I fear the things I've started in my life have produced a workload insurmountable for one person. I trust, though, that you may have the help of a good woman. Even so, what I'm asking of you both is a mammoth task. My affairs are in order, and having deducted several well-considered donations, 
You are now the heir to everything I owned. This should see that you comfortably pick up from where I've left off. If you open the safe, the code is your date of birth, you will find my laptop. Guard this with your life. It contains a detailed database of actions from the day-to-day operation of charitable organisations to a global contact list of people in need of help or guidance. I expect you to attend to the list and to also ensure that it continually reduces and grows over time. It is not a checklist, nor a series of puzzles to be solved. It's an evolving organism with no foreseeable end. This was my life's work. It has outlived me, and should outlive you, although I hope this is not for many years to come. I would not have given this undertaking to anyone. I've entrusted it to someone I am certain is capable. Don't ever doubt this decision, or your own suitability. I have chosen you for your resourcefulness, your patience and your desire deep down to do the right thing. If you feel ill-equipped to aid certain individuals, I trust that you can locate those with the appropriate skills. The challenge I'm leaving you will be a far from perfect endeavour. At times it will seem hopeless and mistakes are bound to be made, with consequences that may haunt you forever. This is the price to be paid, and your reward will be an unbridled fulfilment. All I ask is that you do your very best. You will have no set itinerary, no fixed working hours or address. You will simply travel to where you are needed most. Pay no further mind to the people who gave you my room key. While I cannot predict the future, I do not believe that their paths should coincide with yours. In spite of everything, do not dwell on our last encounter. Your names will be cleared from any involvement and it will do no good to revisit it. Seek counselling if you need it. I've left the details of potential therapists. Meditation always aided me. Through practice it may provide invaluable for you as well. My only fear as I write this letter is that my minor legacy will die with me. Do not let me down. Yours faithfully. Samsara If you'd like to learn more about JW Voice, the author of this story, pop along to the show notes where you'll find a link to him right there. And as for Bear Books Podcast, we're on all your favourite social media. Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Twitter.